African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Good morning. Thank you for joining us here on Thursday, the 22nd of May, 2015. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to African Dialogue right here on Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. And you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. And if you're listening to us online, it's on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're going to be speaking to the Media Development and Diversity Agency from South Africa, which was set up by the government. And over the years, they've been suggesting that there is pluralism, a problem of pluralism in South Africa when it comes to media. So we'll talk to them about that. But before that, let's get our news from Onelins in tea. Looking at your headlines this morning. Burundi Capital Quiet after night of heavy gunfire. All 275 women, girls and children rescued from Boko Haram and taken to the safety of a northern Nigerian refugee camp have been taken into military custody. And the African Union election observation team has released its pre-election findings before the Ethiopia national polls set for May 24th. With your latest news, a good morning. I'm Onilin Tinti. The capital of Burundi is quiet but tense today after a night of heavy gunfire, particularly in the restive neighborhood of Musaga. There is no sign of the crowds that have gathered early each morning for the last three weeks in the capital, Bujumbura, to demonstrate against President Pierre Nkurunziza's decision to seek a third-term election scheduled for next month. More than 20 people have died in nearly a month of unrest, including a failed military coup. Meanwhile, the African Union has come under fire from a senior leader in the Pan-African Parliament for failing to take action against Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza. Burundi dominated the debate on peace and security on the continent at the Parliament. Chairperson of PAP's Committee on Coordination, International Relations and Conflict Resolution, Saleh Kedzabo, says the AU showed double standards by condemning the attempted coup that was wanted by many Burundians but failed to act against a defiant Gruziza. Speaking during, through an interpreter, Kedzabo came out in support of the coup plotters. We thought that with all the negotiation attempts, attempts to dialogue that failed, 
Those who were courageous enough to attempt a coup could be supported so that Burundi could overcome this crisis. But the African Union automatically condemned the coup. I think the African Union thus indirectly contributed to the failure of the coup and contributed to the situation that we are in today. All 275 women, girls and children rescued from Boko Haram and taken to the safety of a northeast Nigerian refugee camp have been taken into military custody. This is amid suspicions that some are aiding the Islamic extremists. An intelligence officer told the Associated Press the move followed fears that some women were communicating at the night with Boko Haram. The camp officials said the suspicions were voiced during trauma counseling sessions. The African Union election observation team has released its pre-election findings before the Ethiopia national polls set for the 24th of May. The team is led by former president of Namibia, Hifike Punye Bohamba. African Union is the only observer mission that the Ethiopian government has confirmed will observe its elections. Coletta Wanjo hears more. The African Union deployed nine long-term observers on 19th of April 2015 to observe key elements of the electoral cycle of Ethiopia's parliamentary elections scheduled for 24th of May 2015. This was in accordance with the African Union's declaration on the principles of governing democratic elections in Africa. The mission deployed long-term observers to different regions of Ethiopia. They will remain in the country until June 2015. The head of the mission, former president of Namibia, Ifikepunye, Pohamba says that the political atmosphere has so far been calm and stable. And finally, Kenya authorities have launched massive investigations into the disappearance of more than 20 youths suspected to have traveled to Somalia to join the Al-Shabaab militant group. Since the massacre of the 150 university students in northern Kenya last month, all the East African countries are now facing a new security challenge with the recruitment of young people to join terror groups in Somalia and Middle East. Two families in the Kenyan capital Nairobi are grappling with fears of the possibility that their two university daughters have joined the ISIS terror group in Syria. Mwaiki Konyo explains. For the last few days, many families in Kenya have been reporting the disappearance of their children to unknown destinations. The government and security agencies have launched a massive investigation to the disappearance of more than 20 youth, both male and female, suspecting to have joined the Somali insurgent group, the Al-Shabaab. Most of the missing youth and unemployed university students from poor families. And according to Professor Abdi Awas of Kenyatta University College, most of the youth are lured to join the terror groups in foreign land through the social media and are offered attractive pay and benefit. Now recapping on your top stories, Burundi capital quiet after night of heavy gunfire. All 275 women, girls and children rescued from Boko Haram and taken to the safety of a northeastern Nigerian refugee camp have been taken into military custody and the African Union election observation team has released its pre-elections findings before the Ethiopia national polls set for May 24th. Channel Africa News.
Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us right here on African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. And you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We know that earlier this month, media organizations around the world called on governments to protect freedom of expression and protection of the media, and that was on World Press Day. But we know that there's a lot of challenges around the world. Uh, we know that uh, there's really a problem of countries being weighed down by dictatorship, civil tension and terrorism and the voices of journalists in that environment are sometimes just a bit oppressed and not really a little bit but a whole lot oppressed and the media sometimes is just sidelined as we saw the issue and were highlighting in the case of Burundi recently where a few of the radio stations were closed there but also in countries like South Africa where it seems like a very democratic state place. We also see uh, pluralistic media owned by foreign funders. And this seems to also pose a challenge in terms of how you create a unilateral uh, conversation. And you're only hearing a one-sided conversation that might be coming out from the media, especially in newspaper outlets. That seems to be where the challenge is at. And uh, also we see the challenge in other countries as well, where grassroots media struggles to tell a different perspective because they lack funding and they have little investment. Now, to look at these various areas. We're going to reflect on this. We're going to be speaking to the Media Development and Diversity Agency and I think on the line we have the CEO, Dutun Choba Mazibugo who is joining us. Thank you, Dutu, for joining us. Um, good morning. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's fantastic having you guys. Now, tell us a little bit about how the Media Development and Diversity Agency came about. So, in 2002, an act of parliament was passed um, to allow an agency like ours to exist, to assist um, on all media on all issues related to media diversity and development. I think at the time there was a feeling that we have consistently the same voices telling us about what's going on in our country, um, and access to that information was limited to a small group of people. So part of what our mandate involves is us making sure that there's a plurality well, you know, English, these words, <laughs> to reality of voices in the space, and we had greater access to, people have greater access to the information. So language is an important thing in our space. Uh, we've seen in the past that only English and Afrikaans are really predominantly heard in the media. Um, and now we're insisting when we um, give funding to projects that they diversify in terms of language in particular, in terms of ownership, um, so that everybody is included. There's an inclusiveness in how media is shared. Well, well, there's a huge challenge in that because when it comes to ownership, and there's a lot of conversation around ownership in South Africa in terms of uh, mm. uh, transformation. I know that the big media houses in South Africa are dominated really by uh, the big four companies, which are historically mm. uh, there before 1994. I used to work for Avusa, for instance. Uh, there's also independent yes. newspapers, Media 24, mm. we have Caxton. It seems, especially in the newspaper industry, that transformation is not very much taking place, especially when it comes to the ownership of it, because it is owned by foreign owners. That's correct. Uh, part of our mandate for this year, part of our focus is going to be around resuscitating the conversation um, around media transformation. I think we have had a few bursts of the conversation, and now, together with the Department of Communications, it's going to be quite a structured approach to how we tackle the issue of media transformation. 
there's a need for a greater um, ability to communicate and to, to have a lot of a lot more people participating in the conversation. Um, so we'll be consulting um, a lot in the next couple of months around how to bring all the different voices onto into one table and let's have a frank conversation around the lack of media information in this country so that we can find viable and sustainable solutions moving forward. And, and Dudu, in terms of your work as an organization, what are your findings? I know that uh, in 2009 and 2010, you did seem to look at this particular issue of uh, this mm. idea of ownership. But where are we now, um, maybe five years down the line? Have we seen a little bit of transformation in that sector, especially when we look at the newspapers in the country? No, I think that's just the, the most honest answer is no, there is has been there hasn't been a lot of change from what we discovered when we did uh, research. Uh, I think the the buy-in, whilst I don't think people are adverse to it, I don't think we've had a concerted um, effort, as I said before, and a, and a structured approach to how we're going to do this. So, so the short answer is no. Um, the situation hasn't changed. Uh, we still have the big four dominating. The efforts that we've made in our side of in in our side of things is obviously to try to fund a lot more newspapers, community newspapers, just so that we can ensure at some level that we have your voices, we've got different voices, um, and far greater access. So it is a work, work in progress, but I think the Department of Communications is really committed to this as our parent department, and together they will be leading us to so that we really see some transformation, particularly in the print. And the broadcast sector is not as prevalent, and it's not as bad. I think when we transformation, the focus is always more on print, but we are going to be taking a holistic approach around all media. Um, What does the situation look like holistically? And in terms of the messaging, I know that's another conversation that uh, we've heard in terms of uh, political leaders and government officials who have made uh, criticisms constantly saying that the messaging that's uh, coming through from the media and mainstream media is hampering development and social cohesion in the country. How true is these claims? And sometimes the, the media comes back in a very defensive mode and saying, hey, we need to tell the stories, whatever story it is, we need to tell the story. But how true is it that uh, there's a lot more criticism coming out from the media in terms of issues that have to do with development? So I think I must note and repeat what the minister consistently says, that we are all for media freedom. We are not, we are not adverse to and we actually welcome criticism from the media. And the one thing that we consistently say is around the issues of fairness and balance. I don't think it's fair to consistently have than just the negative stories. I think there's more to South Africa than just negative things. And I think we're constantly trying to um, help people see the spotlight to say, let's, let's see the country in, in all its facets. When we just concentrate our efforts on the negative news, there is an unintended or intended consequence to that, um, whether it's um, on our society or how people think and feel about the country, on external investments, so the effect of just just reporting on negative news. And we're not saying, we don't want to stop anybody from saying something is wrong, something is wrong. If services have not been delivered, if services have not been delivered, we just always encourage media to do their research, to do their research well, and to present the picture as it is without kind of adding the, spice and the salt and the pepper 
unnecessarily. So government is not against people telling the story as it is. We're just saying there has to be a sense of balance, there has to be a sense of fairness, um, and we encourage, we welcome media to come and talk to us. I think you'll find our minister in particular, she's particularly open to the media. She's always ready to answer questions. We just want people to report and to report fairly and to actually get the other side of the story. Mm. Did you, I think that South African media gets that pretty well, don't you think so? I think when you read an article in, in newspapers or you listen to the radio, I think sometimes, most of the time, then less of the time, you do get a balanced feel of a story, don't you think so? Uh, personally, I, I think I've had a personal experience where what I had said, what I knew I had said, was just totally taken out of context. So I've, and I know a lot of my colleagues have had similar experiences. Um, so the media that I consume, and, and that's really where the MDA comes in, is to say, let's educate our audience, actually. Let's say to them, when you see an article, don't take it um, hook, line, and sinker. You know, investigate what other publications have got to say about the same thing and so that you can make your own conclusion. Investigate, if you will, in fact, just so you are sure that what you're reading is actually the case. We've seen in a number of instances where journalists have come out with a fund, with the headline story, only to find the the work wasn't done properly, or um, the person that they're writing about disputes what was in the newspaper. And the apologies on page three, or some small apology somewhere. The damage has already been done. So I think part of our work is around the education of audiences, and and so that I'm able to to genuinely say yes to answer this question, when you say yes, the media is balanced, or be able to say no, it's actually not balanced because of. ABCD. You know, I read an article here and I read an article there. There were discrepancies. So that's part of our work and part of our advocacy is media literacy and audience development around helping people understand what you read. Find out more about it. Don't just kind of take it as what it is. It might ne- it might not necessarily be the case. Find out, investigate, ask people, talk about it, and then make your own assessment. Yeah, but the onus is also on uh, the officials themselves to be candid when it comes to information, and sometimes that's where problems occur, and then the problem is the media, which is not the case. And don't you think that government uh, departments should also be more uh, transparent in their work? I think all of us should be transparent in our work, and the responsibility lies on both government side and the media side. All of us have to be transparent, so... If you ask me a question, I'm going to be able to answer you. Even if the answer is not necessarily what you want to hear, it is what it is. If you, if then the person that is interviewing me decides to, you know, to kind of color the situation, then that you know I don't have control over that. So transparency is a responsibility of both parties, both on government side or the person being interviewed and the person doing the interview. And also there's another problem in terms of the, that relationship between government and the media is that sometimes when you're in a press conference and you're listening to the president, for instance, he would be speaking about a third force and everyone would be looking at each other. All the journalists would be like, which third force is he blaming here that is using the media to destabilize the country? How fair are those kind of statements as well coming from officials? You know, um, the context of every interview Every interview has a context, so that's kind of, for me, it's difficult to comment on something like that because I, I don't have a context of what was being spoken about and where the president at the time would be coming from. Um, but I think it's then your responsibility to ask as the media, which, okay, Mr. President, if that's what, if really that is what he said, who are these people, what is the third force? Because then go back and try to think up of all sorts of reasons of what he could have meant 
also kind of just adds fire to the floor and sometimes unnecessarily. Ask the question um, and then you'll get the answer. So for me, I think the context of what you've just asked me is going to be important for me because I, I don't know in what context, context you would have said that in what had led to that situation. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to pass on that one. Well, I understand that. But we're going to take a little break with you, uh, Pelisa, I mean, Dutu. And then when we come back, hopefully we'll have the chairperson of the organization, Pelisa Ngom, also joining you on this conversation. And when we come back, I want to look at the issue of uh, transformation in terms of diversity, in terms of embracing community projects, uh, grassroots level um, uh, media. How do we incorporate them into uh, the world of media in terms of support? Because a lot of grassroots media organizations die out without the right kind of support. You are listening to Channel Africa. Sure. If you want to come in this particular conversation here on African Dialogue, we want to hear your views, so you can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. It's our new number, so it's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Do you think that media really represents the people of our uh, African countries? Do you think when you read the newspaper, do you think it represents you as an ordinary African? We want to hear your views. Plus two seven Seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's our SMS line. We'll be back after this. Sikilizaji, jiunge nasi katika kusherekea siku kuu ya Afrika. Channel Africa, sauti ya mzinduko wa Afrika. The theme for Africa Month is We Are Africa, opening the doors of learning and culture to promote peace and friendship from Cape to Cairo. South Africa has planned a full month of activities leading up to and including Africa Day on the 25th of May. Je vous invite de nous joindre pour célébrer la journée africaine. Channel Africa will bring you daily reports and packages on the events, but join Channel Africa on the 23rd of May when we'll be bringing you a live broadcast from festivities in the multinational Yeovil area of Johannesburg in all our six languages. Then join us again on Africa Day, the 25th of May, when we will bring you a further live outside broadcast from the Africa Day commemorations in Cape Town, Johannesburg. Africa Day celebrates the day when the organizations of African Union OAU, the precursor to the African Union AU, was formed in 1963. So stay tuned to Channel Africa for more details closer to the events. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, as you heard there, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. If you're listening online, thank you for joining us on our website, www.chalafrica.co.za. Thank you for joining us on your radio set as well on the frequency into Africa, 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, we are looking at the issue of media transformation, and uh, we're speaking to the Media Development and Diversity Agency from South Africa, looking 
looking at what does this diversity in media mean? What does media transformation mean in a country like South Africa? But also, when I look at other issues now, maybe moving into issues of what's happening in the continent. But I wanted to look, before we get into that, the issue of uh, the grassroots level media, community uh, radio stations, community newspapers. Do they form part of this conversation? And the main problem with them is that they're not really well funded. Grassroots media is not really well invested into. And I know right now we're joined by we're joined by the chairperson rather of the organization or agency, Pelisangomo. Thank you for joining us as well. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning to your listeners. Now, just to look at that that aspect of grassroots media, I know they struggle in South Africa. There's a lack of funding. There's little investment. We're seeing now and then in pockets of radio where there is a certain type of investment, a little bit of help there, especially when it comes to radio uh, stations that are stationed with universities and, and such. But uh, what more can we do and how important is grassroots media? Thank you very much. Uh, perhaps before I answer your question directly, I just need to say that uh, introduce uh, what Media Development Diversity Agency is about. It is a statutory development body uh, that seeks to promote and ensure media diversity in South Africa. And uh, statutory it would mean that it's been funded by the state, so meaning that it demonstrates the South African government's commitment to the constitution. Uh, because the issue of media diversity and access to information is enshrined in our constitution, and um, so it's an act. It's a it's an agency that was established through an act of parliament. Uh, it reports to parliament directly. Now, amongst the key things that we do, we really need to create an enabling environment for media development and diversity, redress exclusion and marginalisation of disadvantaged communities, and particularly in terms of their geographic location and as well from a linguistic perspective and promote media development through and diversity mm. through, mm. provide support uh, to both broadcasting, community and small commercial registration, including investment in what we call uh, capacity building. Mm. Now, coming directly to your question, this is the sector that is really pressing, and I think even across Africa, actually, uh, because it's not a sector that is actually driven by uh, profit maximization. It's a sector with a very strong um, uh, social consciousness in it in terms of how it does its work, but also it must take a social discourse as a priority and economic discourse of people, in, 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 uh, particularly of its own constituencies. So in essence, it, it always has to uh, undertake what you call a balancing act between strengthening their balance sheet at the same time and showing that it's not it's not removed from its own communities. Now, here's the issue then. The, the strength and the sustainability of the sector is also linked to what you call socioeconomic landscape of the constituency itself. Now, if, for instance, and, and, I, and let me just say in the South African uh, terms, how we measure um, uh, the socioeconomic landscape was something called LSM 1 to 10, all right? So any community that is measured to be above five is classified as a middle-class community. But anything below five is classified as working class and poor communities. And that's where you often find community stations because such a community requires a lot more services from government. So in essence, 
community radio stations plays that what I could refer to as a critical role in terms of social development discourse. So they become a platform unto which they link uh, communities to their to their own local government. Mm. And, and, and in terms of that kind of support, how can we ensure, uh, Pelisa, that they do have that kind of financial support and we strengthen them? Because I, I think sometimes you hear the voices of the gatekeepers in medias, the, the powerful, the strong, the influential voices. But hey, the poor, the ordinary citizens of communities are usually heard through grassroots media. But that's where the problem is, is if there's no grassroots media, you'll never hear these voices. So we need to strengthen those um, areas of media. Look, I can't agree more with you. I mean, obviously, in, 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 the, in the funding structure of NDDA, we get uh, 50% of our budget from government, and then we get 50%. Our, our budget is less than $50 million. We get it from the players, professional players in particular. And it's easy to get funding from them because it's also regulated. But, and the, and the issue here is truly about what is it that we need, what is it that we see as societies? Well, and, I, and the point is put on around the, the, the voices that are heard in society and that influence a final uh, public policy discourse. Because more often than not, it's those who are powerful and they tend to dominate, you know, in terms of, what is it that you want to do? But the, the key issue, though, also amongst the, the initiatives we've been pursuing recently is to interact with municipalities and as, as a strategy. I mean, it's really an intervention, one intervention strategy is to say you need to spend 30% of your ad spend in community media because anyway, more often than not, communities, whatever, I mean, a local government, whatever they'll be advertising, the, the, the communities would be the immediate consumer of what would have been placed, either in the print or in the broadcasting. And in the second component, what we're saying is there's, a, there's an interesting link or there's a correlation between the quality of content that community radio and print community media carries versus the interest of advertisers mm. and their ability to generate revenue. Mm. So, and it's a factor as well that really backloads mm. with, uh, with attracting and retaining highly skilled journalists mm. who would go in depth with the stories and invest in investigative journalism. So, so in essence, we really find ourselves in such a, in a crossroads that we, we make attempts. In fact, as we speak, I just left a, a meeting of MDDA, organized by MDDA, called the Learning Forum, where we're looking at multiple things. And amongst those, we're saying, let's encourage tuning programs amongst you guys, but as well, tuning programs between community radio sector and commercial radio sector to learn mm. how do you, how do you uh, undertake your business, but also what are the strategies in place you apply or you implement to ensure sustainability, and particularly in terms of the, uh, the balance sheet. And we do think that the other two tiers of, uh, uh, um, of media, which is broadcasting and commercial, should actually not leave this sector behind. Let me just make the last point, that amongst the key things 
we're looking at is a better and a structured engagement mm. between the established media houses and the community media. And amongst those, because we believe that part of the balance sheet sometimes may not be about rent and cents only, but may be about the quality and the caliber and investment in the certain development and skills mm. that could sustain the sector so that they're in a better position and they can pursue the primary responsibility of community media, which that of taking up local issues. Hmm. Well, that comes to something that I, I really believe in, in terms of creating an entrepreneurial um, spirit amongst um, the people that we want to represent. So let's say, for instance, uh, the Mutsipas of this world must start creating and investing in media companies because I personally believe that um, certain markets of the media industry have not been exploited enough. Um, so that's also a difficult thing. Um, let me take this back to you, Pelisa, in terms of, uh, I mean, or rather, do let me take this to do rather, and say, is there mm-hmm. enough fostering of entrepreneurial black uh, people who can be interested in media? Because I think that's where the problem is, is that, we're complaining, complaining, but not enough blacks or Indians or mm. coloreds mm. actually are creating their own media. Sure. Uh, we've got a component of um, our funding called Small Commercial Media, um, where we do exactly that. I think our objective is to encourage um, media owners, media ownership um, in the true sense, as in you own your platform. Um, so we find um, a number of community print um, magazines uh, to do exactly what you've just said, to encourage them to say, you can actually make a living out of um, the media, and this is how you do it. We have an extensive um, capacity-building network, so we tap into a variety of learning institutions, training institutions, where we encourage um, our projects to go and learn about issues of governance, learn about issues of marketing and communication and sales, how to drive sales. So we are doing in our corner. I can't say the initiatives are enough um, to cover, you know, ever like a lot of people, but it's certainly in our space we're doing what we can. And through partnerships, I know we'll be able to do a lot more because it's so limited, as the chairperson said. Uh, but we are, doing, we are doing something in our corner. Pelisa, your views there on that entrepreneurial aspect of things? I mean, look, certainly, of course, <laughs> Dudu and I work together. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, she's, she's really spot on. But I think the bigger issue that we must also accept is that it's the whole notion of the lack of, uh, you know, uh, cultural, I mean, sorry, enter, entrepreneurship drive, you know, in communities. And I think what we are doing as NDDA is really a very small intervention in, in the biggest scheme of things. Amongst the key issues, for instance, which uh, I would like to perhaps to comment on, I know in the in, it's in the program that they're dealing with now on the learning forum mm. on what are the opportunities for funding and access to funding mm. for small commercial and, 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 and broadcasting. Because the key issue, again, is truly about, one, finding that balance that, while you are a community-orientated initiative, but at the same time, there are entrepreneurial skills that you need to um, uh, have for you to be able to actually run a media, community media project that is sustainable. Mm. But at the same time, what are the possibilities for funding? Where are the funding institutions mm. to ensure that they support such initiative on the ground?
Mm. Well, we're going to come back to that, and uh, we've got about five minutes left for this conversation. And maybe when we come back, we're going to look at what's happening in the rest of the continent in terms of media suppression and, and how that actually uh, really uh, twats uh, media transformation on the continent. And also we'll look at the issue of uh, African language media because that's another uh, aspect that is very dwindling in this country. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Remember, we want to hear from you as an African. Do you think that the voices of ordinary Africans are well represented in the media? Let us know your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. We'll be back to wrap up this conversation after the break. This month has been declared We Are Africa Month with the theme Opening the Doors of Learning and Culture from Cape to Cairo. Channel Africa strongly supports the project and will keep you abreast of events. We would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at Channel Africa Numerical One, or write to us at the address PO Box nine one three one three Auckland Park, Johannesburg. 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, we're going to wrap up the conversation and today we're speaking to the Media Development and Diversity Agency from South Africa, which has been set, uh, set up by uh, the parliament here to really to look at diversity in terms of media. And we've touched a few things, but I want to look at the issue of media suppression. I mean, I was uh, really looking at the issue when we started the program that a lot of uh, uh, organizations um, on World Press Day laid out a call, um, especially with the uh, PN. International, Penn International, they signed out more than 20 of its regional centers for a call on governments to protect freedom of expression and protection of the media. But we've seen some issues in South Africa. We know there's been uh, problems in Burundi whereby there's a huge call for the, rem- the, the, ext- the extension against the extension of the president in that particular country. And we saw the result of that three uh, radio stations being closed down. And we hear that in the Kenyan government has also closed down some uh, certain media sites. Now, coming back to you, Dudu, how does that kind of control by the media, that kind of censorship suppression, actually twat the way the media functions? You know, I think South Africa, um, our constitution has been heralded world over. We enjoy cover, so to speak, um, from our constitution. And as such, you would have seen us um, in the news and you would have heard government um, in support of media freedom in in all its shape and in, in all its glory. So it's sad when we then have to, you know, look at what's happening on the continent 
Um, but I think we are in a prize in a prize case that we are able to quote the constitution and and where people feel that we're not living up to um, the prescripts of, the, of that constitution, they call us um, to account. Um, Chair, I know in your previous life in the NGO sector you would have dealt with this more extensively. Um, but for my yeah, so Chair, I think I'll, I'll allow you to add to that as well. Yeah, I think uh, Pili says, is let us go. But uh, let, let's wrap it up with you uh, in, in, in the next minutes or so, two minutes that we have left to uh, uh, do, because um, Pili said had to go back to a meeting. But uh, looking okay. at the issue of the African language media, uh, it's been an issue. African languages are an issue that seem to be also a central mm. conversation now in South Africa. We see what's happening in the universities in Cape Town and Stellenbosch. People say, hey, we actually want our own languages to be taught in our own language. Mm. Transformation hasn't been taking place quick enough in South Africa. We're still learning English. We're still learning Afrikaans. And it still seems to be the case in media, as you mentioned when we started the program, Mm. that English and Afrikaans seem to be those dominating languages in the media. Mm. We have, when you apply, whether it's for radio, they apply to ICASA for a license. Um, And part of the license conditions, there's an area where you've got to specify um, the languages that you will be um, broadcasting in. And then there's a double check when you then come to us for funding um, so that we are sure that there isn't a, pre- a dominance of any language, uh, whether it's English or Afghan or Zulu for that matter. So we have our monitoring and evaluation um, systems in place that check for that. So if you said you were going to broadcast in 80% Isuzulu, then that's part of your license condition. So we are monitoring it, we are enforcing it through um, legislation or through people's contracts, and it's, an, it's, a no, it's a non-negotiable from where we come from. Um, the indigenous languages have got to be 70%. The previously um, marginalized languages have got to be more than 50 to 50%. But, but is it something your, that's actually... Um, the the thing is, is it something that's actually undertaking though, something that's actually coming to the forefront? Because as an ordinary South African, I really don't see that through our media. I still see language, languages such as English and Afrikaans still being dominant, especially in newspapers. I'm, I'm sure it's because that's, that's the no. common la- that's the common language for for the country. I don't know what's the reason. No, no, I totally agree with you. I think as we sit right now, there definitely is still that skew towards um, English and Afrikaans. And the efforts that we're putting in our corner is to make sure that we don't find um, newspapers or radio stations or online platforms that have English as a predominant language or in percentage forms or Afrikaans because we're trying to level the playing ground to say, where is Isisulu? But I think a lot of it is, or Isisulu for that matter, um, but a lot of it has got to do with the audience development because if you do a needs analysis and your community says, I want my news, I want everything that you talk to me about, then it's your responsibility to, and the community will call you on it if you don't give them um, their news in that particular language. And that's the nice thing about the community sector is that the radio station and the newspaper are accountable to the community. So if the community said, then that is what they want, and they will call you on it. When you go to the um, um, board um, community meetings and where they elect their boards, such complaints do come through, and people are put on notice to say, you are contravening your license conditions. Should you persist, we are, you are going to get your license revoked, or it jeopardizes your funding. So those you know, are the, the, the space that 
where we've got control, we exercise that control. Well, that's how we're going to wrap it up. It was a great conversation having with you. Thank you for joining us, Dudu, and uh, hope that, uh, hey, we see this transformation. You guys have a lot of work to do in this regard because uh, it still seems like, hey, uh, the former regimes are still in charge when it comes to uh, media control in South Africa. But thank you for joining us, Dudu. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Fantastic. That was CEO Dudu Ngoba Mazibugo on Choba Mazibugo. And uh, that was her alongside the chairperson of the organization, Pelison Gomo, looking at the issue of what they do at the Media Development and Diversity Agency. Hey, do you think that we are well represented in our communities in terms of our voices as ordinary citizens of the continent? What do you think? Plus 2779-695-7930. want to hear your views. Let's have a song before our economics update. Dem love dem till it call away. It call away. Well, well, it's time for us to move on and get our economics update from Tabiso Loko. The Security Industry Association of America has blasted the South African law requiring foreign-owner security companies to sell at least 51% of their businesses to locals. Yesterday, it emerged that SIA was now demanding that AGOA's renewal for South Africa be conditional on the scrapping of the local ownership requirement. SIA contends that such companies are already required to exclusively employ South African citizens within the country, making the ownership requirement unnecessary. Commercial Bank of Djibouti, CBD, plans to target government and corporate project financing in the Horn of African Nation. The lender, which officially opened a year ago, has agreed to a $60 million equity participation in new hotel project in the country. CBD is a unit of Marias Holdings, which also owns Fabtech International, a builder of houses 
airport hangars and other infrastructure in Djibouti. The capital of Malawi, Lilongwe, has been forced to start repaying the $50 million refund to the Global Fund on issues to do with malaria, HIV and tuberculosis by installments through the national budget. The government of Malawi, through the Treasury, has confirmed the development. Aspen Farmkey Holding Limited, Africa's largest generic drug maker, agreed to sell two pharmaceutical portfolios to units of Strides Acrolab of India for a combined $301 million. The company will divest about 130 drugs to Strides Australian businesses for $209 million. It will also sell a portfolio of six branded products to Strides Singapore for about $92 million. Leading open pit mining company Afrimet Limited has lifted headline earnings per share by 24.4% the year to end of February. The open pit mining company, which provides industrial minerals and construction materials, says it continued to deliver solid results driven by its diversification strategy. In a statement, the group says the turnaround of Infrasource Holdings acquired the previous year was progressing well and contributing positively to the group's results. Indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar, 1180 South African Rand, 965 Botswana Pula, 709 in Zambia. 64 British pound, 89 euro. Gold, 1211 dollars. Platinum, 1153 dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil, 65 dollars, 25 cents a barrel. That's an economic update here in Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, sports fans, I am Musiwudi Makura with your latest sports news at the sound. Starting off with cricket news, Zimbabwe's cricket team is in Pakistan, the first test-playing nation to visit the country in six years. Thousands of security personnel were deployed as the team were taken from Lahore Airport to the City Hotel on Wednesday. Pakistan has hosted no top-level international cricket since Sri Lanka's team bus was attacked by gunmen in Lahore back in 2009. Six policemen died. Zimbabwe and Pakistan will play two T20 international matches and three one-day international matches starting this Friday. Leading the touring party is the head of Zimbabwe cricket, Ozaz Bevude. He explains the hesitance of the players ahead of the tour. From the onset, um, discussions were held with the players and everyone was asked as to whether they wanted to go to Pakistan. 
whoever is here in Pakistan today has done so voluntarily based on the offer that was made. And the offer was Pakistan has requested that we tour. Would you be interested in coming? It's very normal for any individual to obviously be concerned about the conditions that are prevalent on the ground in any country that they're going to visit. And as I said earlier on, there were the unfortunate events that occurred in Karachi, which caused some trepidation, but nevertheless, a, a recommitment was made by all the players that they wanted to travel and they felt that it was the right thing to do. Pavute denied reports that Zimbabwe's players were hesitant to tour Pakistan and that they had to sign indemnity forms because the Government Sports and Recreations Commission had not cleared the trip. There's absolutely no truth at all to that. No indemnity forms were signed. As I said, an offer was made. Would you like to come to would you like to come to Pakistan? Would you be willing to tour? The board further stated that anyone who was uncomfortable was free to decline the offer. So we have a full-strength team. As I speak right now, we're at the Qaddafi Stadium. The players are in the nets. The Pakistan team is not too far away. And um, and, and um, they're progressing with uh, the preparations of the match that will be on, on Friday. On to football news, Hungary have admitted that they are working on having more power by the time they face the likes of Australian champions Nigeria at the Under-20 World Cup in New Zealand. Hungary and Nigeria will clash in a Group E on the 7th of June. The Hungary Under-20 squad and staff departed for New Zealand on the 20th of May and are due to arrive today at the final destination of the town of New Plymouth, the scene of the three group matches. On to rugby news, Vodacom Blue Bulls number 8 Hendro Lienenberg will lead the junior Springboks at the World Rugby Under-20 Championship in Italy next month. The South African Rugby Union confirmed earlier that Lienenberg will skip the 28-man squad during a three-week tournament from the 2nd to the 20th of June. He led the junior box to a thrilling win over the Varsity Cup Dream Team last month and also captained them when they clinched a 2-0 series win over the Argentina Under-20 side in Rosero last Saturday. The squad which was chosen by the national selectors consists of 16 forwards and 12 backs and includes six players who featured in last year's tournament in New Zealand. Last year, England etched the young South African side by a single point in a memorable final at Eden Park in Auckland. And fun in golf news, the world number one and defending champion Roy McIlroy is clearly the man to beat at the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth, but rather, but Wentworth boosts a strong field as befits the flagship event on the European Tour. Nick Dyer reports. Three wins this season, including one last weekend, seven wins in a year, acknowledging that winning here was the catalyst for an astounding run with two major championships secured. McElroy says the energy levels are good into the week and his aim is a further step in becoming the best player of his generation. Yet Justin Rose is among the opponents, twice second and saying a tournament he grew up attending is one on his bucket list. Francesco Molinari and former winner Miguel Angel Jimenez come in great shape from the Spanish Open. Martin Keimer and Graham McDowell aim to find their touch and kickstart seasons. It's a who's who of European golf and the tough tree-lined course is likely to see another high-quality competition regardless of the clear favourite. The Zaya Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Well, that's how we wrap up the conversation today. Uh, just a reminder that we want to hear from you. So do interact with us on our program. You can do that on Twitter at Channel Africa One, or you can get a hold of us there at African Dialogue, which is our other handle. Or SMS us your views on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's a new number. Let me repeat it for you. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Thank you for joining us. Until next week, Monday, God bless.